0: Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, everything your dog wants you to know, as well as the Cat Bible, everything your cat expects you to know. This episode features one of three guests who were part of my weekly hour-long NPR show broadcast over the air every Sunday on WLIWFM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it has broadcast continuously for over 15 years. This show is about dogs, cats, and other creatures who share the planet with us. Please check out my other Pet Talk podcasts at tracyhotchnerpets.com. This show would not be possible without the longtime support of Waruva, the pet food company founded and privately run by David Foreman, who named it after his rescued kitties Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Waruva is a quirky name for a company with whimsical names for the dozens of different cans and pouches of cat food they make but what sets them apart is how serious David is about high-quality nutrition. They were the first pet food company to use human edible ingredients and process them in the same facilities that make human food, remaining privately owned and run, accountable only to their own high standards. This show was also made possible with the generous support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Bruce Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian. He personally created many styles of litter to make sure that even the fussiest cats would not have out-of-litter box problems, the number one reason people abandon their kitties. Dr. Elsie also created his own brand of cat food called Clean Protein, the first dry cat food I can recommend because it's based on the protein found in a cat's natural prey. Dr. Elsie's is also the founding and continuing sponsor of my New York Cat Film Festival of which I am the founder and director along with the annual New York Dog Film Festival, which premiere in New York City every October and then travel the USA and Canada supporting local animal welfare groups. Go to dogfilmfestival.com and catfilmfestival.com to find out when we'll be where. We have yet another fabulous canine mystery from Sarah Driscoll, who's not an actual person. Jen Dana is the actual person. Who was half of Sarah Driscoll and now she's all of Sarah Driscoll and I don't know how she does it, but that others may live is a really, really fascinating mystery on so many levels. Jen, congratulations on another book that you've pulled off by yourself when you used to be twice as large. You used to be two people. Now you're one person, right? Yes, that is true. Th- thank you. And thank you for having me. It's good for you to be here. What? Um, I know that the transition, you made it to doing it all on your own. But one of the things that, that I wonder about is that the main character in the series is a rescue dog handler. And was yeah. that your, your co-author's specialty herself personally? Yes, it was. So
1: Anne was uh, a dog rescuer. She started off with standard schnauzers. Yes. And then um, after uh, we sort of met, she had a couple of dogs when we when she met. They unfortunately passed as they got older. And she got into pit bull rescue afterwards. And so at one point she had five pit bulls. Wow. They were amazing, great dogs. Uh, she trained one of the dogs, Kane, to be a therapy dog he was an amazing therapy dog that they went to, you know, um, health centers and right. senior citizens and that kind of thing. And then when we started this series, because she wanted to make sure that our nose work details were correct, she taught him nose work. They took nose work classes so that um, we could make sure that all of our sort of technical details in right. the right. were correct. Yeah. So Th- unfortunately, with her unexpected passing last year, we lost, I lost that aspect of support in the series. Luckily, Anne did a fantastic
0: job of teaching me everything she knew. I figure that you must have just absorbed it, you know, and, and just have mm-hmm. become yeah. one with that topic. Because I guess once you understand the mechanics of working with a dog that's searching with his or her nose, and sometimes their eyes and ears, but it's usually their nose, you, then you know it for life. It's, it, I mean, each dog can have their individual yes. quirks and traits and personalities, but the work is the work. Have you ever been curious to try it yourself? I don't have any dogs currently.
1: so That would so be awkward. It, it would be a little harder to do. <laughs> um, I have grand dogs currently, but no dogs of my own right now. Uh, but it, I think it would be really interesting. Of course, you have to find the right dog to That's do it exactly with. exactly right. They need right. to have the right temperament, and they need to have the right drive. Yeah. Without those particular, you know, characteristics, you're not going to get anywhere.
0: <laughs> well, I was wondering if you had been friends or stayed friends with any of her cohorts in the rescue world, or did she not actually go out on missions? She simply learned it.
1: Yes, she simply learned it. Yeah, she was, she was big in the rescue world, so she right. had a lot of contacts in the rescue world but not within sort of search and
0: rescue. Which is a completely different world. I guess what's most amazing in the series, and you've continued it in in high style in that others may live, is that these people with their dogs come from sometimes all over the world, but certainly all over the United States at their own expense, taking on Mm -hmm. the liability, the, the physical, mental, financial burden of it, in order to help find victims in catastrophes. When you came with the idea for this one, which is a, a brilliant depiction of a multi-story condominium collapse, you, were you in fact inspired by the one that happened in Florida, or do you simply give give uh, thanks to that, if you will, or thoughtfulness to that in the beginning of the book in just a kind of generalized humanistic way, or was that the inspiration? No, it, it
1: definitely was the inspiration. And it, it kind of goes back to the title of this book, because when we were doing title brainstorming for book number seven, which ended up being called Still Waters, this was one of the titles that Anne had suggested for that book. Oh, nice. And I really liked the title. Yeah, so, this, that's, so she did have one last contribution to this oh, book. Oh, that's lovely. Was, was the title. But I didn't want that title for... What was still waters, because it just wasn't a big enough story. Uh, a title that right. like, that others may live needed a, a the kind of story where there were a lot of lives on the line, including that of the rescuers. Yes, um, and just sort of coincidentally in June of 2021, when um, Champlain Tower South collapsed in Florida, we watched that rescue take place because. That's sort of our personal niche is sort of the search and rescue. We were watching very closely how that happened. And as we were sort of watching it, we were kind of thinking, you know, like, you don't want to take advantage of a situation. But I was so impressed with how these people came from, you know, the four corners of the of the earth, basically, like there was a there was an Israeli team that showed up. Wow. Um, And they did such amazing work. And under horrible conditions, for them, the problem was the heat a hurricane blew through it was just it was just awful and all of these people were working 12 hour shifts at 90 degree plus weather and it they didn't sort of question it they just they were needed and they showed up and they did the job that needed doing and it would have been a t- like an emotionally tolling job to do i was so impressed with what i was seeing that i wanted to kind of honor that And that's sort of what turned into That Others May Live. It's a book that's told entirely from the perspective, not of the victims or their families, but of the first responders.
0: Which is an amazing way to tell these kind of giant tragedies and these Mm -hmm. uh, events that happen that it's really hard to wrap your mind around and you just think, oh my God, the horror of the individuals involved. I guess what is most remarkable to me about the book is that You seem to have nearly gotten an engineering degree to have written about and described the way the building collapsed, the way it pancaked, the way that steel and concrete lean on each other and and what can happen in the next five minutes, the next five hours. How did you do that engineering piece of it? Because it's – I mean, to someone who – maybe doesn't have a dog and doesn't want to necessarily read books that revolve around dogs, someone who just wants to understand how a building collapses and how you, and how you undo it to find out what's underneath. It's really riveting and very complex. How did you learn?
1: Well, I, I, I sort of joke that I, I did actually take the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers structural collapse training. It's oh a two-hour training that you goodness. can take online, so I actually have the certificate for that. But the main the main thing that, that, that got me through this was there is a YouTube channel run by a gentleman named Josh Porter. Um, the YouTube channel is called Building Integrity. And while I was doing the research, I ran across this channel, and he is a structural engineer, a forensic engineer, and within like the first couple of days of Champlain Towers South Falling, he started a series of videos looking at, you know, from a forensic engineering kind of point of view, looking at what had happened, looking at photos, looking at building plans, looking at the original plans wow. of the building from when it went up. And so he did, I don't know, maybe 12 or 16 different videos, and they are fascinating. So I highly recommend it if people are sort of interested in this topic to go back and and start at the beginning of Josh's videos and work your way through them because they're absolutely fascinating. Josh taught me structural engineering through those videos. And so when I was trying to make this as realistic as possible, I have given Talbot Terraces most of the same engineering problems that uh, Champlain Tower South had. Of course, in this case, though, it's not, you know... um, Neglect and you know, breakdown of materials that leads to the collapse. There is an actual sort of nefarious you know plot in the background,
0: which is what makes it a mystery,
1: which is what makes it a mystery and a thriller. Yeah, um,
0: it's it's really a great weaving of those two things of a, a disaster that many come to try and solve and figure out, and there's and it's and it's pretty disappointing in terms of. Being a rescuer and feeling like a hero, and hard on the dogs not to not to be successful. You write about that in the book, and it's something I had heard about from a a vet friend who was at nine eleven. And one of the the problems Mm -hmm. they had with the dogs, besides breathing and all the toxicity and the heat, um, was not having what are called, I guess, live finds. If I'm saying, if I'm remembering your terminology correctly, and it'd be It'd be very interesting if you would talk about what in fact is done in those situations to keep up the the enthusiasm and the hopefulness of those dogs. Yeah, it
1: is it is a real problem because these are dogs that have that kind of temperament and drive we were talking about, but even dogs with that kind of drive, they will get discouraged if yes. they're working and working and working and just not finding, you know, live victims. In the case of 9-11, I mean, this was, you know, a a perfect example of of how that happened as well. And, And handlers know this. And so what they do is they have other rescue personnel, you know, firemen who are hanging around and maybe aren't on shift yet, go and get lost, quote unquote, in the rubble so that their dogs can find them. So that the dog does have the feeling of, you know, of success. course, that doesn't help the handler. The handler's still dealing with all of the emotional toll of also not finding and knowing that that what the dog found was not real, but it helps keep the dog's spirits up because they do get discouraged.
0: Which is interesting because we just think of that dog that will go after the chipmunk or the squirrel or the whatever the prey may be in just a natural Mm -hmm. kind of dog setting and not giving up, you know, like dropping dead of exhaustion before giving up. But it's because they still yeah. can smell or hear or see some sign of life in their, in well, their prey.
1: Yeah, it's very confusing in a situation like this, too, because a body that's only been dead for a few hours smells like a live body.
0: Which is another right. thing there's that no you deep, bring up. There's no deep yeah. So,
1: so, yeah. so it is actually, in a lot of ways, it's confusing for the dogs. The dogs are like, come on, let's get going. And you might know that that person has already passed, but you can't really explain it to your dog. They're smart, but unfortunately they're not that smart.
0: Right. And and now we have the human understanding of how, what a, a newly dead person smells like versus a person who's still mm-hmm. alive but unconscious we know what yeah. that there is a difference. Of course, we can't smell it ourselves, but the dogs can. And
1: Yeah, the dog would think that they were injured.
0: Right. And in the book, at one point, the dog won't give up because the dog's sure that this mm-hmm. very recently expired person is something yeah. that the people must come and attend to right now, please. I picked out a little passage yep. for you to read. If you would just set it up for a minute and read it, that would be great.
1: Yeah, sure. So this was also something that happened at at Champlain Tower South, was they um, they set up a family reunification center. Obviously, when the building fell, and I mean, at the beginning, there was like 150 or 200 people that they thought were missing. And then, of course, they revised that down as people sort of checked in. Family members were coming to the site and were, you know, trying to find out what was going on. They did not want the family members to be where they would kind of come into contact with the media because they were trying to respect their privacy and, you know, give them a place to grieve and, and to, you know, have their concerns heard. So they, they set up a family reunification center. So this is the same sort of thing. There's a, a, you know, a ballroom and a hotel that they basically turned into a giant meeting room where they would do uh, briefings first thing in the morning and last thing at night and would be, the The thing about this with the the family reunification center was that the um it was run by a deputy fire chief, and his thing was that he would be one hundred percent honest with the families. No matter how bad the news was, he would be dead honest with them. And they would bring people in when the the families had questions about, you know, how were the how was the large equipment coming in to move things? How were the dogs being used? right They would bring people in. they would bring them off the site and bring them into the family reunification center to explain their processes to the families so the families knew exactly what was going on. So this is a scene that takes place at the Family Reunification Centre. There is a D.C. Fire and Emergency Services deputy fire chief who is is running, um, running these meetings. And because people have asked to have someone from the dog teams come in, Meg comes in with Hawk, but she also brings her sister, Kara, and uh, Kara brings her uh, therapy dog, Saki, because it's not just the search dogs that are involved in this scenario. There are therapy dogs that are also being used for the comfort of the family. Well done. So, yeah. Okay, so we're going to get into the reading now. As Meg scanned the crowd, she found Kara and Saki. They'd moved on to a young woman holding a fussy toddler, who was now quiet, eyes wide, as she gently stroked Saki's head. Kara was whispering to the mother, who was nodding in response, her lips in a twisted, sad smile. From a dog standpoint, it's not just the search dogs that help. We're using therapy dogs to help the first responders de-stress when they're on one of their short breaks. It's hard work out on the pile, physically and emotionally demanding work. Therapy dogs can help rescue crews go back to the job steady and a little more refreshed. And here, among you, we have another. I've asked my sister, Kara, to come today with her therapy dog, Saki. From the crowd, Kara waved an arm over her head. When the session is over, please feel free to go see Socky. She's a wonderful, comforting dog who likes nothing more than to snuggle with a human. As Kara sank down, Meg scanned the room. Let me run you through how a search dog works at a site like this. Hawk and I arrived about a half hour after the collapse two days ago and have been here for a 12-hour shift each day. There are other dogs who work the same shift that we do and more on the second shift, so dogs are always working the pile. Hawk is what we call a live, fine dog. They look for the living, for the lost, and the injured. His nose is about 100,000 times more sensitive than mine, and Hawk has been trained on a number of human scents, including blood and sweat. But the main thing Hawk looks for is skin cells. Everywhere we go, we drop about 40,000 skin cells each minute, which essentially leaves a path for a scent dog to follow. In a scenario like we have at the Talbot Terrace's, Scent dogs are looking for that same scent anywhere in the rubble, and especially a concentration of it. There are four live-find scent dogs in my unit, and we were here first on the pile on Monday morning. The urban search and rescue teams arrived that afternoon, and the next day they brought their own dogs who were similarly trained. Meg turned to the search grid photo. Our teams are working together, so we're making the best possible use of the dogs. If any dog alerts on a scent, workers will come and concentrate on that area so we have the dogs working in loose pairs so that each hit can be confirmed. What happens if a scent isn't confirmed? The question came from somewhere in the crowd. Depending on the location and the strength of the first dog's alert, we may still divert crews to the area because every area will have to be dug through. But if it's confirmed, then there will be a rapid move to that area of the pile. The crews will come in and use large equipment like a crane to shift bigger pieces if needed. Otherwise, crews will start digging and using concrete cutting tools to move debris and get into the pile. If needed, we bring the dogs back in to narrow the search or to confirm rescue rescue crews are still in the right area. We don't want to waste time
0: and effort by being in the wrong place. You've done a fabulous job of reading your own work We've run out of time. I hope that everybody understands that Others May Live is really a wonderful mystery. It goes far beyond what what Jenna and I have talked about. But it's a wonderful book with great dogs in it and a great story about humans. Thank you again, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed the show. There were a few more special companies that make this show possible, and I hope you'll try their products because they support my mission to entertain you with valuable information and advice. This show is supported by Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, where they create holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. Earth Animal makes a dazzling array of healing products for dogs and cats, as well as the innovative dog chew, No Hide, and the hybrid dry food, Wisdom, which is sometimes all that my picky Weimaraner Maisie will eat. The show is also brought to you in part by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two dedicated women who take human edible, ethically sourced ingredients to gently cook dog food that is then frozen in pouches and shipped right to your door. They founded and run their own company and answer to their own high standards without interference from venture capital investors. My dogs love it every single day.